This is edusounds.com. I am Abdul Ghani Kayode Otokabe, and I'm interviewing Samuel North, a PhD scholar at the University of Hull in Heritage Studies. So today we begin, we're going to be talking about slave history in Cape Town in South Africa. What fascinates me about the particular history of slavery in Cape Town in South Africa is that slaves were actually brought into Cape Town, which Normally, historically, we are more used to hearing about transatlantic slavery, meaning that slaves were taken from a lot of African countries across the Atlantic Ocean to places like Europe in particular. So Samuel North is doing his PhD research on slavery history in on slave history in Cape Town, South Africa. So can you give me a brief intro into your research? Um, so what, what the specific focus of my research is, I would say, is looking at how slavery is remembered and also remembered by people, just the the public in general, and also represented by museums and uh, other heritage outlets, I guess, such as tour guides and so forth um, in Cape Town. So that's my specific focus, but I obviously need quite a bit of background knowledge on slavery itself in in the Western Cape, at what is now the Western Cape area. So I have quite a bit of historical knowledge too, I would say. So, I mean, how, how did you get to go into slave history in Cape Town? I mean, being living in England for quite a long time. I, I studied South Africa as an undergraduate student at, at the University of Hull. And um, I also did some voluntary work for the Wilberforce Institute, WISE, at the University of Hull, which is where we're sat at the minute and where I'm based at the minute. And um, WISE is an interdisciplinary institute looking at both historical and contemporary slavery. And it was kind of merging this interest in South Africa with uh, the voluntary work I did for, for WISE with, uh, I guess, funding opportunities which were available at the time because that is kind of important when you're looking to do a PhD. And uh, this study arose out of uh, confluence of those um, three factors, I dare say. So you wrote a blog post and what website was that? That was on South African History Online that the, the blog post went up. Um, if you probably Google something like slave memory and South African History Online, it, it would come up, I hope. Okay. In your bl- blog post, you talked about um, apprenticeship period, about apprenticeship and slavery. I couldn't really get that. Um, the, the apprenticeship period was in, in South Africa, a four-year period, which followed the end of slavery. Uh, slavery in, in, in Cape Town was abolished, or in South Africa was abolished on the 1st of December 1934, which was a year after most of the places in the British Empire, where you also had the apprenticeship period. Although, of course, when it was abolished, 1833 elsewhere it was in a five-year apprenticeship period because the apprenticeship period expired on the 1st of December 1838 wherever you were and what it basically was abolitionists such as Wilberforce though those type of people they argued that in order to become accustomed to the ways of society of wage labor etc they needed the former enslaved people needed an apprenticeship period effectively to you know adjust themselves almost to this new way of living and then there was also the argument that the slave owners needed this period to adjust themselves to paying wage labor effectively um so it was almost an adjustment period but what i think it should be seen as is a further five-year or four-year period of enslavement because i think it was effectively perpetuating slavery there was little difference in the apprenticeship period so i wouldn't say slavery ended until 18 
1838 properly. And even then it's debatable. Okay, so which part of the world were these slaves brought into Cape Town? Well, the first, the first people came from Angola. But that was, I think that was, there were two, two ships came from Angola. The majority of them came from various Dutch East India Company trading stations or, you know, the Indian Ocean world. So you had areas such as modern day Indonesia, uh, Sri Lanka, modern day Sri Lanka, um, India as well, but also Madagascar and Mozambique where um, the Dutch East India Company had trading stations, which they could take advantage of and, and bring people back to the Cape with them. So it, it It wasn't actually legal to enslave local indigenous people in South Africa or in the Cape Colony as it was. Um, hence, people were imported. Uh, although indigenous people were employed as contract laborers, and then the the distinction between slavery and contracted labor becomes very blurry. And I think perhaps they were one and the same in some some cases. Because in your blog post, you talked about they were referred as colored. Yeah, um, the the term coloured kind of emerged, and I don't think it's necessarily clear where it came from. Although it was referred, you know, it, it was referred to in official records and so forth from the late eighteen hundreds onwards. So these were people who were neither white nor black. It was effectively this catch-all liminal category for people who were either descended from enslaved people. So had, I dare say, Asian blood in them or people who were the product of racial mixture, which, of course, was a great fear in the Victorian period for colonists um, or just any, anyone who could neither be primarily identified by the authorities as, yes, you're definitely white or yes, you're definitely, inverted commas, indigenous black African was was categorized as colored, which is still actually an accepted term in South Africa because it gained uh, potency under apartheid as a racial category. Um, people still refer to themselves as coloured. It still appears on the sen- on the census. Whereas, of course, in the Western world, coloured is a, a highly offensive term. So I always, when I when I'm talking about my research over here, I always have to make this distinction. You know, I say, well, coloured is still an acceptable term in South Africa, and it's on these terms that I use it um, because obviously I, I'd never dream of using it over here. Okay. Then you talked about the issue of ancestral roots and weakened the capacity of the community to remember their kind of ancestral roots mm-hmm. based on the slavery experience and the avoid it. What could be the reason or reasons for that? I think one of the reasons, there are so many different reasons. One of the reasons that's connected with trauma, I think, is the shame. There's a there's a certain, it's not so much shame that originated with slavery. It's, it's more to do with the fact that in Victorian colonial society, the people who were classed as coloured were seen or, or wanted to fit into the established order, I guess, which was the white order. And slavery formed no part of that. So it was kind of, um, if you want to be white, you kind of, you don't want to be associated with the supposedly barbaric practice that was slavery. You know, you, you want to be seen as people who had little to do with that, almost who had overcome it, kind of, but didn't have this uh, degenerative or per- what was perceived as a degenerative experience in their ancestral 
line. So that's one reason there's a certain shame, there's always been a certain shame element, particularly in, in this category coloured, where you have people among whom it was advantageous for these people to claim to be white for obvious reasons, because white people were given preferential treatment for so long in South Africa. Then you also have the passage of time from the event is another reason why it isn't remembered quite so strongly, particularly given that in this passage of time, the histories which have been represented and preserved have been the histories of white settler society. So the apartheid regime, for example, had little interest in preserving or talking about um, aspects of history which related to slavery. So you've kind of got this forced forgetting almost in that sense. And then also many of the people who descend from the enslaved in Cape Town and the wider Western Cape suffered forced removals under apartheid where they were taken from normal neighbourhoods and moved to racially exclusive townships which were often quite desolate and dominated by drug problems, gang activity and you know, were spatially removed from town centres where a lot of people worked. So you have this situation where that memory dominates this kind of, inverted commas, coloured group consciousness rather than the experience of slavery, which, you know, say slavery for African-Americans is kind of the, the dominant experience, I guess, in their historical memory, you could argue. Whereas for coloured people in, in South Africa or in, in the Western Cape, it isn't, you know, the forced removals has kind of dominated that. So there are many, many reasons why it isn't remembered now, which a lot of them relate to the specific history of South Africa. Yeah, but at the end of apartheid in 1994, the first 10 years of democratic rule in South Africa by the ANC, they refused to go into that path of history, and which, in a way, you couldn't say it's because of apartheid. The, yeah, um, the immediate post-apartheid ANC regime, I think, had they, they had an agenda which was very much trying to construct national unity, which was, I dare say, what what had to be done, you know, post-apartheid. You either, you're either going to have violent, or maybe not violent, but sweeping changes, uh, redistribution of wealth, or you're going to do it like the ANC, like Mandela did, which was reconciliatory, nation-building, rainbow nation. They were much buzz, buzz terms at that time. And what they tried to do was construct a past which was harmonious and which everyone could agree on. So you had this idea of a nation which was united by its struggle against oppression, but oppression meant basically was reduced to struggle against apartheid. So the ANC were kind of interested in the past 50 or 100 years of history, whereas slavery to them was seen as divisive because they saw it as only relating to the history of coloured people, thereby it was promoting this almost separatist history, which didn't which didn't speak to either the black African or white populations. So they saw it as this divisive thing, and they weren't eager to promote it at all. So as much as that wasn't under apartheid, you see the legacies of apartheid and how that influenced historical teaching are still very much uh, relevant to how it's been treated afterwards. It still dominates the discussion, I think. But the people with the ancestral origin of being enslaved to themselves, I mean, they've been avoiding to be associated with slavery. Yeah, I I mean, there are people who've traced their ancestors and who embrace this history now, but they're still, I would say, in a minority. Although 
there are an increasing number of people who I've seen through my own work who who are doing this. It's just I think other than the facts I've you know the factors I've cited, I think in a lot of cases, if you just look at how people view history in general, in a lot of cases people just aren't interested. You, you, you know, in general, I mean, if I was to leave this building and and talk to someone walking down the street about what they thought about the fishing industry which of course is something which is relevant to quite a lot of people in Hull because a lot of people are employed in the fishing industry the chances are they might shrug their shoulders and say they don't care or they might be really interested so I think there is also an element of of beyond you know everything I've talked about the shame element and the forced removals how that dominates memory and and trauma and things like that I think sometimes you're just going to get people who are interested and other you know people who aren't I think a lot of people have every day concerns uh, basically keeping food on the table as a number one priority so they don't necessarily have the time to go to the archives and research their family history or even be engaged by questions of their own history um, because this is a, a slave descendants of a group of people who in many cases will still be quite poor you know not exclusively but in in many cases so it's very much the more educated community leaders who have embraced this history yeah, that brings up the argument that it's always been the interest of academia mm. who in a way kind of objectify poverty i mean that's some argument and want to use it to promote their own academic achievements so i mean how would it benefit the locals the real people that are affected yeah i i mean i think a lot of people who've done the research on and i include myself on this uh, a lot of people who've done the research on cape slavery are people who haven't any particular ancestral connection to it you know it's been in that sense outsiders and i think this is something which some activists have have drawn attention to i've said you know we should be researching this as our own history to try and rally other people to get involved and i would completely um support that insofar as how does this affect people who are impoverished i mean i would argue maybe this is idealistic that having this history acknowledged having it in museums and so forth at least does provide a sense of self which can empower though it has to be done properly and i think you have to engage with people and, and if people if you aren't engaging with people then it's that kind of falls flat really but how will it empower if you're looking at the issue of um, stigmatization that's a very good question and I, <laughs> I think i think you know one one should be very mindful of what you could potentially do is is just remind people that they've always lived in poverty or relative poverty and so did their ancestors um and i don't i don't think there's an easy answer uh, to that question i think if, if you look at how african American people have perhaps viewed slavery it's almost as and again I'm generalizing it's almost as though something which they overcame and something which becomes a source of pride because they overcame slavery and it's almost this foundational thing from which they you know achieved what they achieved and maybe if you look at it on those terms that is a way of overcoming stigmatization but like I say it has to be done properly I think but then can we bring in the issue of social cultural context in that sense mm. maybe different environments different cultures approaches to such an issue could that be a key issue in it yeah ab- absolutely i mean if you look at how slavery was or has been and is experienced and it's remembered very differently everywhere i mean you mentioned to me when we were chatting in, in nigeria you don't really talk about it very much and i think at least from from what i know of ghana for example it's not
not spoken about all that much locally, whereas you have the American tourists who are actually quite eager to talk about it, and they've shaped how it's represented at places like Cape Coast Castle, uh, for example, more so than locals have. So there is this, yeah, the, the social context is, is massive, and what's seen as appropriate to talk about, and how this relates to the present day as well. Yes, but what I find very interesting is the issue when they wanted to exhume some dead bodies in a particular site in Cape Town. Was it in 2003? Yes. And some people started saying, you can't desecrate our dead ones. And apparently, that was supposed to be a cemetery for slaves. Yes. Now, I find that very interesting because these are a group of people that seems to be, I mean, from your from the premise of your argument so far, that most times they don't want to come out. But when something that becomes very, very important to them due to so many reasons, they kind of came out and said, no, you can't do this to our late, to our dead ones. Yeah, I, I think... Firstly, the people who were objecting were mostly the community leaders slash intellectual people who have engaged with the slavery as this ancestral history more so than the population at large have. Now, this was a, a it was 2003, a developer attempt, trying to dig the foundations for a new set apartment blocks stumbled across this colonial burial ground, which was effectively a working class burial ground. So you would have enslaved people, uh, indigenous people, you know, labouring classes, um, soldiers, I think, as well, sailors. It wasn't necessarily a slave burial ground, but it became identified is that because of these activists who were saying these are our ancestors who are buried there and rightly so they objected to the exhumation which in the end went ahead but as kind of a compromise this memorial center was built um, and that memorial center was this collaborative process and it was I think agreed on and, and considered quite appropriate until 2010 when attempting to cash in on the footfall that that area would receive from fans football fans going to the World Cup stadium at Greenpoint walking past where this memorial centre is they put this coffee shop in there they thought yeah we'll pay for the city council this is thought yeah we'll pay for this expensive new building by putting a coffee shop in there you know generating money through the lease so you've got this uh, artisanal coffee shop in there which is very much at home with the uh, more gentrified elements of Cape Town which completely renders this centre inappropriate because if you think, think about it it's a memorial site um, and it's you walk into it and it's like a coffee shop because the memorial is round the back which is where the bones are um, although you can't you can you can't walk right up to the bones but you can see them in their cases behind this uh, fence type arrangement but it's very much like you're in a coffee shop you can hear cups being refilled you can hear mugs clattering and, and so forth and the activists who initially opposed the exhumation process have you know rightly so said this is completely inappropriate way of of uh, dealing with this issue yes so i mean that's quite a big issue i think yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, I think as well, it's um, this is something which did raise consciousness of slavery as a history in Cape Town because it was very visible. You had protests on the site at the time um, and it was reported on quite widely and there was quite a lot of disagreement, some of it quite angry from reading accounts at the meetings. So yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a huge issue. And it also is very interesting of, as to who has a voice in post-apartheid South Africa as well because, um, like I say, it's very very much it's very much uh, this 
this memorial centre and how it's been treated and also the fact that this was digging the foundations for an apartment block is very much shows the kind of um, gentrification and uh, capitalist development which is dictating matters more so necessarily than the wishes of ordinary people, which is a big issue. Yeah, I mean, I'll come back to gentrification, but before that, I want to say, did they reach any compromise on the issue of the cafe and the site? The, the site was a compromise because the activists opposed the exhumation, yet that went ahead. But, you know, they were, I don't say they were granted because that sounds kind of patronising. There was, this memorial centre was agreed between activists, uh, the city council and a number of other bodies. So that was a compromise. Uh, the coffee shop, as far as I know from looking at records, there was no consultation whatsoever. It was agreed, there was this tea kiosk idea sort of a discrete tea kiosk potentially in the square outside that was always part of the plans but this coffee shop which completely dominates the scene that was not agreed at all so that wasn't a compromise i mean are they were are they really activists or justice seekers i i think both probably i mean i think they were entirely justified i think the way the council has particularly has gone about the memorial sites and the coffee shop particularly the coffee shop has been pretty disgraceful in terms of memorialization and it's highly inappropriate so I, I would I would say you know justice seekers is a fair way of describing these people as well and if you think as, as well what they're trying to say I think was you know we should be represented our history should be represented our history should be acknowledged so there's justice in that sense as well it's almost social justice I guess yes because there's this argument about we're going to talk for who that they want their own voices to be heard and not someone else's voice absolutely absolutely um and that's that's was central to how history is represented under apartheid, and it's also central to how history has been represented now in South Africa. Who is heard and who isn't, and frequently the people who have been speaking about slavery are the people who haven't been heard. Um, but, but then you fall into that group, then. <laughs> well, I, I'm mainly talking about the people who such as those who were objecting to the exhumations. Not so much. I see myself as an observer. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. You talked a lot about gentrification. Now there's this argument, I think, about governments have got to generate income, taxes as one of the ways. Construction, usually when economy goes down, when an economy has gone down, construction industry is one of the key areas to create employment. And if you're agitating against gentrification, and we've talked about people living in poverty, how would government be able to fulfill all these social needs, infrastructural needs, and things like that without developing the spaces they've got that are viable enough for such projects? That's a great conundrum, um, really. I think if you look at how gentrification is taking place in Cape Town, for example, you have at the minute, you have um, District 6, which is quite an iconic area where people were forcibly removed from under apartheid in the 1970s. You have the area adjacent to what was District 6 called Woodstock. And in a number of cases recently, people have effectively been evicted from social housing there to make space for capitalist development. And one of the arguments for this has been, oh, well, you know, sorry, you know, <laughs> one of the arguments for this has been people in doing this we're creating jobs you know not it, which kind of ignores the fact that you're moving people effectively moving people out of their houses where they've lived for years and they have uh, a deep identification with this uh, I would say you could still you could still generate income and, and jobs from construction projects without necessarily contributing to processes of 
gentrification. You don't have to, although obviously this is a way of paying for these developments, but I don't think you necessarily have to create developments which are exclusive. You know, for example, apartments which cost a lot of money or let the spaces out to restaurants which are expensive and far beyond the financial reach of many local people. Or, and again, in things I've looked at, developments which kind of ignore or twist history for their own commercial ends. You know, they'll, they'll portray themselves as historic spaces or something like that without actually specifically referring to the histories which they kind of are channeling or distorting them or ignoring the kind of more brutal elements I guess. So I would say you don't always have to, it doesn't have to be done in the way it's been done, although that is a very interesting conundrum, which I think is a fine tightrope to walk down. But some people perhaps are of the opinion that it's just like being against a progressive society. I mean, to an extent that's that's correct, but I think progressive wouldn't be disadvantaging people, moving them out of their houses and creating exclusive spaces which are beyond the reach of a lot of people. So while I do, I do think it is a valid, you know, job creation is a huge issue in South Africa. I don't think that the only way of doing it is the way that the council in Cape Town have gone about doing it. Um, and it has indeed created, particularly what's happening in Woodstock at the minute, like I, I spoke about, um, it has created quite a quite a bit of unrest locally. You know, people don't want to leave houses they've lived in for decades. But is that not a sign of a city progressing? It's a sign that it can attract money for development. I mean, I, I don't see it as progressive moving, forcing people to leave houses, basically. Particularly when the places they're going aren't necessarily as pleasant or secure as where they've been living. And like I say, it, it can be done in a far more sensitive way, just in, in general. Not, not, I'm not only talking about when people are forced to leave their houses to make way for development. I'm, I'm just talking in general, such as um, the apartment development, which was built in the vicinity of the, the burial ground. It, it doesn't have to be this confrontational process, I don't think. Because now I'm saying like two extreme cases. There's this extreme of we're going to make physical development because it's very viable, it's profitable at all costs. And then you stand at the other extreme to me now, saying that shouldn't be the way. You should leave things the way they are. So could there be a middle approach? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm trying to advocate a middle approach. I think you can have these, for example, if you take the case of the burial ground, development, you know, develop, no one... No one would really object, I don't think, to development occurring on a blank plot. The issue comes in when you then discover human remains beneath that and how you deal with those remains. For example, the people who opposed the exhumation obviously didn't want the development to go ahead. That's one extreme. I don't know necessarily if I would advocate that, although I think there are circumstances under which it could be advocated. That could be an appropriate response to not go ahead with the development the other way of doing it is to go about it in a sensitive way where you listen to everyone's concerns and you come to a proper compromise which is what the city council tried to work towards and then i think ended up falling short of when they put the coffee shop in this space so i i, I i'm not against developments like that happening but i think they can be done in a more nuanced way i, I dare say there, there is a i think there is a big issue when you have people um who perhaps aren't 
always very affluent objecting to this process and people the people who are moving into these apartment developments are you know they're very expensive uh, to rent and to buy i think there is a big disconnect there and it sums up quite a lot of the issues in post-apartheid south africa in terms of what's changed and uh, what hasn't and the quite gaping gap between rich and poor in that sense, it seems gentrification is happening all over the world, really, most places, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of the issues are the same, the same the world over. I mean... I mean, London, for instance. Yeah, London, and any major city, any major... You, you do see this in London as well. It doesn't always have to be so destructive, but I think when there's money to be made, people will often take the shortest route to that money. And that's where you have the problems arising. So is it really a case of the physical developments or the social exclusion of certain group of people, maybe based on income, that's the real issue there? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the real issue. It's the social exclusion aspect. I think if you are developing areas, then you have to take into account, you know, accessibility and constructing. And I know these places have to pay for themselves, but constructing what are financially exclusive buildings and spaces is, isn't a way of ensuring accessibility at all and that for me is the issue is it just a case of business approach or there's this mindset that we as humans we seem to have about living with certain class of people maybe in terms of economy or income level or something like that i mean i, I think it depends on on where you go i think this uh, fear fear of the poor i guess is is something which is quite important i mean you see in cape town the number of uh, rich estate or affluent residential areas which are dominated by electric fences and um, you also see the number of new residential developments which are effectively gated communities surrounded by electric fences and from speaking to people those elect the number of electric fences has actually proliferated since apartheid because there's this perception of fear so yeah i do i do think that i do think this almost fear of the poor is is a big issue there so on a pragmatic approach now, how can we have a socially inclusive setting? I think, for example, if you, if you take the coffee shop that was put into the memorial, it doesn't have to be so expensive. You know, the coffee isn't by nature expensive, not, not relatively. You could, for example, put a community centre in there, have people selling arts and crafts from disadvantaged communities and generate income in that way. You'd probably be more difficult to generate income, but you could do that. And I mean, I look the thing I look at it from my work looking at slavery is you have this continuity over time of exclusion, exclusion from colonial society as enslaved people, exclusion under later colonial society through increasingly racialized politics, inclusion, uh, sorry, exclusion under apartheid through forced removals, through the masses of uh, racial exclusive legislation and now exclusion uh, socioeconomic terms post-apartheid. So um, that's where I see this as pertinent over time, how gentrification relates almost to slavery. And then of course you have issues like the burial ground where it kind of directly intersects with history. So that's how I see this is all connected and that's I think what we're fighting against. Fighting against? <laughs> as a society, as a society of conscious people. Yeah, trying to fight is a, can I say, slow violence? It's trying to fight is a slow violence. No, fighting against such policies that seems to be like slow violence. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely slow violence. Um, I can't remember who conceived the term slow violence, but I would say slow violence. Violence over time, you know, intergenerational trauma.
that, that sort of thing. And on that note, I would say thank you very much. It's been quite engaging. We've been speaking with Sam North, a PhD scholar at the University of Hull, Heritage Studies. Thanks. Yes, thank you. It's been a pleasure.